It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. purpose of the book of Hebrews is to show us how much greater Jesus is than anything or anyone else. And uh, in chapter one, the author of Hebrews spent the majority of that chapter revealing how much greater Jesus is than angels. And and we saw in that chapter that uh, the author gives us five reasons why Jesus is greater than angels. But I want you to note that within those five reasons, really the focus of the attention where the author is kind of uh, dealing with is all about Jesus's deity. Uh, So he's really just emphasizing the greatness of Jesus over the angels, focusing on the fact that Jesus is God. And that's how he starts. He starts with that uh, first kind of general uh, concept that because Jesus is God, he's greater than the angels because they're not. Uh, And then he starts um, giving us different points that kind of connect to Jesus's deity uh, that makes him greater than angels. Because Jesus is God, he's worshiped uh, and the angels They worship him, Uh, and so he's greater than them. Because Jesus is God, he's the eternal king, and the angels are his subject. Because Jesus is God, he's the eternal creator, and the angels are his creation. And because Jesus is God, he is the ruler over everything, and the angels are his servants. And, you know, that's an impressive list. When you look at these five reasons of why Jesus is greater than the angels, you know, that's definitely something that uh, is impressive, and it focuses on the deity of Jesus But the author of Hebrews also wants us to understand that Jesus is greater than the angels, not just because of his deity, but also because of who he is and what he did in his humanity. Here in chapter 2, the author is going to pick up where he left off. We had those first four verses of kind of that warning, of that challenge to not depart from Jesus. And now he's going to get back into this uh, reality that Jesus is greater than angels, but he's shifting the focus. Chapter 1 was all about he's greater in his deity. And now for the remainder of chapter 2, it's going to be the focus of Jesus is greater than angels in his humanity. He's greater when he came to this earth. He's greater in what he did as that perfect man for you and I. And I think it's wonderful that the author of Hebrews emphasizes both the greatness of Jesus' deity and the greatnesses of his humanity because you know, that's something very important that we need to understand. When Jesus came, he was 100% God, but also 100% man. Uh, and so we need to recognize his greatness in both of those realms of his deity and his humanity. Now, something I love about what we're going to be uh, seeing this morning about the greatness of Jesus and his humanity is that the author of Hebrews is going to point out four things that Jesus did while he was here as a human on this earth. But the significance is why he did it. He did it for you. He did it for me. And so, you know, when you look at the chapter one, that's an impressive list. 
It's an impressive list of who Jesus is as God and and all the things connected to his deity. But you know what? I I love chapter 2 because it really emphasizes not just the power of Jesus and the majesty of Jesus and the honor of Jesus and the glory of Jesus, which we saw in chapter 1 with him being worshipped, him being creator, him being king, him being ruler. But now we see something which really kind of just demonstrates his love for us. Because we see these four things were specifically done for us. It's not just Jesus is great because he's God and he deserves worship and he's king and he's creator and he's ruler, which is all important. But now we're going to see, but then he became one of us and look at these things that he did for us because he loves us. And so really, as we look at this, for me, this chapter is more personal than chapter one. They're both amazing and important to see the greatness of Jesus, but this one deals with what he did for you, what he did for me. And so hopefully it's encouraging as we look at Jesus in his humanity and what he came to accomplish for you and for I. And so we're going to see the greatness of Jesus this morning in those things. Now, we're going to start with the first thing that the author of Hebrews reveals about why Jesus in his humanity is greater than the angels, and we see that in verses 5 through 9. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. In these verses, the author here brings up an important reality of something that God has given, a role that God has given, a role of dominion and authority that God has given to mankind over the world. And he did this for mankind, not for angels. Notice that it is to mankind that God has made this world subject. He did not make the world subject to angels. And the author quotes from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, which speak about the, the dominion that God has given to mankind over the world. And it says, What is man that you were mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, as the author of Psalm 8 writes about this reality of the dominion that God has given to mankind, he's in awe of what God has done for man, in awe of the role that God has given to man of this authority and dominion over the world. And so he asked this question to start, what is man that you would be mindful of him, that you take care of him? He recognizes we don't deserve this. We don't deserve this authority. We don't deserve deserve this dominion that God has given to us. And then he tells us what God has done. He's crowned mankind with glory and honor and set us over the work of his hand. And he's put everything in subjection under his feet. 
Now, the author of Hebrews is only quoting Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, but if you go to Psalm 8 and you keep reading, in verses 7 and 8, we're given some examples of the things that were put into subjection to mankind. We're told, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. And the reason that these specific things are important to note, they're kind of just listing the fact that we've been put over everything, is if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, that's the same terminology used as we see God giving mankind dominion over the world. You see, Psalm chapter 8 and the author of that is basically just speaking of something that Genesis chapter 1 clearly reveals that God had given to mankind all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And so let's read that in Genesis chapter 1 and see what I'm talking about. Verses 26 through 30 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the living things that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for you. And so, and it was so. So in these verses, in the creation of mankind, we see two very special things. The first very special thing, which we won't get into detail because we could spend a whole teaching on it, is that we were created in the image of God. You know, nothing else in creation is created in the image of God. And so we are special in that part. But there's also another special aspect that connects to what we're going to be looking at here. And that is the fact that God has given mankind dominion over his creation, over this world. And we see that in Genesis here. He's given us dominion over the fish, over the beast, over the creepy things, over the birds, over everything. Even dominion over everything that grows. That mankind is put in this place of rule and authority over the earth. And he did not give that to anyone else. He did not give that to angels. He gave it to mankind. Now unfortunately, as we know, in the garden, things were going well until all of a sudden we screwed everything up through our sin. And sin had some significant consequences. The one that God warned them, you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. We know that death came from sin. Separation from God came from sin. But something else came. The dominion that we had, that right to rule, that dominion now has been forfeited because of sin. Mankind can't even take care of himself. He can't even resist his own sinful urges. So he has no ability or capability to rule and to be uh, in dominion over the earth the way God had intended it to be back in the garden. Now notice that the author of Hebrews is not speaking about the past dominion. He's not speaking about what God gave in uh, the garden. He's speaking about a future dominion where mankind will once again have dominion that it forfeited in the garden. Notice what he says in verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. So he's not saying, you know, looking back to Genesis, he's looking forward. 
The world to come, God did not put in subjection to angels. And this is quite significant because God says, here, Adam, here, Eve, I put everything under subjection to you. You have dominion and we fail through sin. And well, in the future, God's going to say, you know what? I am not going to change that and give it to angels now. I'm going to continue with mankind. They are the ones that I'm going to give once again this dominion to rule over the earth. Now, what does the author mean when he speaks of the world to come? And there's two main possibilities, and commentators kind of differ as to what it is. The first one, thought, is the new earth that God will create. If you look in Revelation, he's going to destroy this one, and he's going to create a new earth. And so the world to come could be referring to this new earth that God will create. And others believe that it's speaking about the thousand-year reign of Christ, that there's going to be a very different type of world uh, when Christ reigns. And the Bible speaks of, you know, a lion and lamb laying together in this peace that's going to be because uh, the ruler, the prince of peace, Jesus Christ, will be on the throne. Uh, but regardless of which one it is, the important thing to note is that with both of those, Jesus is ruling. He's definitely ruling in the thousand-year reign, but he's also ruling on the new earth as well. And that's one of the main points the author wants us to see in verses 8 and 9. So after he quotes Psalm 8, which speaks of this dominion that God has given to mankind over the earth, notice what the author says in verses 8 and 9. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So the author of Hebrews kind of sums up Psalm 8 by saying, you know, God has put all things in subjection to mankind. But then he brings out this important reality that would have been obvious to everyone, should be obvious to us. But we do not yet see all things put under him. Well, God has given dominion to mankind. Everything in this earth is supposed to be in subjection to man. But all we got to do is look around and we realize that's not the case. That's not how things are right now. And so there's this problem. So Psalm 8 is speaking about something that has not yet been fulfilled. We do not yet see all things subject to mankind. And that's the bad news. And the bad news is, the reality is, our sin has caused this problem. It's our sin that has forfeited that dominion that was given in the garden. But then in verse 9, the author shares the good news. Hey, we've been given this dominion, but, you know, we look around, we see we don't really actually have it because of sin, but we don't see man's dominion right now, but what do we see? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, and for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So the author is contrasting what we don't see with what we do see. And what we don't see is the bad news, and what we do see is the good news. We don't see all things in this world put under mankind. We don't see mankind having the dominion over the world that we were given in the garden because of our sin. And that's the bad news. It's a consequence of our sin, something that we've lost because of our sin. But the good news is what we do see. We see Jesus. And I want you to note the four things that the author reveals that we see in Jesus. First, that we see that Jesus took on humanity. That's what it means when it says Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Because as we already looked at in chapter one, Jesus is far above them. We saw all those reasons why as he sits on the throne in heaven, but he left the throne in heaven and he became a man. 
And so he was made a little lower than the angels, even though he has rised above the angels and who he truly is as God, and is speaking of his humanity. Second, we see that Jesus, while he was a man, he suffered death. Third, we see that because Jesus suffered death as a man, he was crowned by the Father with glory and honor. And fourth, we see that Jesus, by the grace of God, died as a man so he could taste death for everyone. He died on the cross for the sins of everyone so that anyone who puts their trust in him can be forgiven, can be saved of their sins. So the author of Hebrews reveals that in the Garden of Eden, God gave mankind this dominion over the earth, this wonderful responsibility to rule and reign, but we forfeited that dominion because of our sin. But in the world to come, mankind will once again have dominion over the world, and the reason that's going to happen is because of what Jesus did. He paid for the thing that hindered us, that forfeited it. Our sin was the problem. Jesus dealt with that sin, but not only that, as a man, he took dominion over the world once again. So he can rule and reign, and then we can rule and reign with him and give, him that, give us that privilege to do that. And that's something that if you look at the thousand-year reign of Christ, the wonderful truth is, you and I, as the Bible speaks of, it's not just Jesus ruling, we are ruling with him. Uh, and we get to rule and reign and have dominion over the earth like we were once given in the garden. David Guzik wrote this, God gave man dominion over the earth, but man forfeited his power, not his right or authority, to take that dominion through sin, and the principle of death took away the power to rule. But Jesus came, and through his humility and suffering, he defeated the power of death and made possible the fulfillment of God's promise that humans will have dominion over the earth, fulfilled both through Jesus' own dominion and the rulers and the rule of believers with him. Notice that when Jesus took on humanity, he fulfilled what was intended for mankind from the beginning. And that's something that's amazing when you see Jesus here on this earth is that he had complete dominion and rule and authority over everything in this world. And you see that as he was able just to, hey, we need money. I can command a fish to come with money in its mouth. Hey, people are fishing and they don't catch anything all night. He can command those fish to go straight in to uh, the nets. There's a storm. He can stop it. There's water. He can walk on it. There's broken lives. He can heal them. He can raise people from the dead. He had full dominion and power over the things of this earth. And most importantly, he paid for the sin of mankind, which was a thing that was keeping us from the dominion we were given back in the garden. You know, Romans chapter 5 speaks of what Adam's sin did to mankind. We think, man, Adam, you really blew it. But the bottom line is we all would have blown it. We all have sinned. But we see the consequence of what Adam did to us versus the blessing of what Jesus in his sinless life and sacrifice has done for us. And I'll read that. Romans 5, verses 18 through 21 says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, speaking of Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, speaking of Jesus, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience... Many were made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And what a wonderful contrast of all that Adam did and his sin that just brought us into this horrible place versus what Jesus did in his righteous, sinless life and sacrifice for us gave us the free gift of salvation. So the first reason why Jesus in his humanity is greater than angels is because Jesus conquered sin and death and took dominion over the earth and made it possible for mankind to have that dominion as well. And no angel could do that. No angel has dominion over this earth. That's the first thing that the author of Hebrews wanted us to understand. God never gave it to them. That they don't have that. They never will have that. That was something specifically given to mankind. And so no angel could take our sin. They couldn't conquer death. They couldn't make it possible for us to retain our dominion over the earth. Only Jesus had the power and the ability to do that. And it's another reason why Jesus is greater than the angels. Now remember, the recipients of this letter, they're considering leaving Jesus to go back to Judaism, and they need to remember how the greatness of Jesus has impacted them personally. You know, they've been able to see how much greater Jesus is in the prophets, how much greater Jesus is in his deity over the angels, and now it's getting more personal. Don't forget what Jesus did in his humanity specifically for you. You can't forget that as you're thinking, well, maybe we'll go back into Judaism, understand the greatness of Jesus and what he accomplished in his time here on earth for us. The only reason they and us can be saved from our sins and conquer death and regain dominion over this earth is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And how foolish it would be to leave the greatness of Jesus, to leave what he has accomplished for us, to go to something far inferior, which would be anything. Go back to Judaism, go back to anything else would be inferior to who Jesus is and what he has done. The second reason why Jesus in his humanity is greater than angels is in verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and by whom all things are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Again, I will put my trust in you. And again, here am I, and the children of God has given me. Here the author of Hebrews shares with us something that was fitting for God the Father to do through Jesus, to do for us through Jesus. We're told that God the Father brought many sons to glory. Now that word glory is speaking of heaven. And many sons is speaking of this wonderful adoptive relationship that God has adopted us and made us his children. And we're given two reasons why God was able to do this. Why is it that God is able to enable us to to come into glory, to his presence in heaven for all eternity? Why is it that God was able to adopt us and make us go from enemies to children? Well, the first reason is because Jesus is the captain of our salvation. The Greek word here translated captain means the chief leader, one that takes the lead and pioneers the trail for others to follow. It also can be used as an author, someone who is the source and cause of the story. Jesus is the captain. He's the chief leader. He's the author. He's the source of our salvation, the cause of why you and I are able to be saved because he is the one who made our salvation possible 
by suffering on the cross for us, by taking the judgment of God for us. And not only did Jesus sacrifice uh, himself on the cross to enable us to be saved from our sins, but also to enable us to be adopted as God's children and to give us an eternity in heaven with the Lord. So the first reason why God was able to make us his children, allow us into heaven, is because Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He died for us and made that possible. The second reason is because of Jesus' sanctifying work in our life that makes us one family and makes us brothers and sisters of Christ. We are told, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The reason that you and I couldn't have a relationship with God is because of our sin. Our sin separated us from God. He was holy. We are sinful. And so what Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sin, it took us from this place of sinful people, but now God can see us as holy, as sanctified. And now we can have a relationship with God, and now we can be children of God and brothers and sisters of the Son of God, Jesus. So the author of Hebrews shares three Old Testament passages to make this point, because it's such a, an amazing point, especially in Judaism, where they didn't see God in that way. You know, they didn't see themselves as this special child relationship with God. And so, you know, the author of Hebrews is showing, no, this isn't just a, a New Testament concept that God would adopt us as his children, that we would have this intimate relationship with him. This is something that the Old Testament spoke of as well. And so the author is quoting three Old Testament passages that are speaking of the Messiah taking humans and having this relationship of brethren, uh, brother-sister relationship with himself. Um, and he says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. So the three Old Testament passages that the author of Hebrews is quoting is Psalm 22:22, Isaiah 8:17, and Isaiah 8:18. And in each one of these examples, the Messiah is willing to associate himself with his brethren, whether it be a congregation of worship, a community of trust in the Father, or in a declaration of uh, a common family association. So God the Father adopted us into his family. He enabled us to spend eternity with him in heaven. And the two reasons are because Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He made salvation possible by sacrificing himself on the cross. And Jesus also sanctified us. He made us holy before God so that we could go from that sinful person to that sanctified holy person and have that sweet relationship of the children of the Father and brothers and sisters of Jesus the Son. So the second reason why Jesus in his humanity is greater than the angels is because Jesus saved us sanctified us, and made us children of God, and no angel could do that. I mean, as we looked at that first time we were looking at angels, they're impressive beings. God uses them to do quite significant things, but we need to understand no angel has the power to save us. No angel has the power to make us holy. No angel has the ability to enable us to be adopted into the family of God. Only Jesus was able to do that for us, which makes him much greater than angels. So for those considering leaving Jesus and going back to Judaism, going back to something other 
than Jesus. They need to remember where their salvation, where their sanctification, where their relationship of child-father relationship with God has come from. It comes from Jesus and the work He did on the cross. No one in Judaism, and we already looked at all the prophets, Jesus is greater. And you look at all these people that Judaism elevated and looked at as, man, they're so wonderful. None of them, no angel, no person, could accomplish what Jesus did. He is greater than all, but He has also given us the greatest thing of all, our salvation and our sanctification. And so it would be so foolish to ever depart from Him. The third reason why Jesus and His humanity is greater than the angels is in verses 14 and 15. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same, that through death He might destroy Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. When Jesus left His throne in heaven and became a man, He became one of us. He took on flesh and blood, which is what we have. And the ultimate reason for why Jesus did that was that He could die in our place. And the only way that Jesus could die in our place was to be one of us. If we want to die in our place, He has to be one of us and take our sin upon Himself and die. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And the author of Hebrews tells us two wonderful results that transpired because of Jesus' death for you and for me. The first thing is that Jesus' death destroyed the devil who had power over death. Jesus' death conquered the devil and it conquered the power that the devil has over your life and over my life. You see, the Bible tells us that we were slaves to sin and our master was the devil. Before we accepted Christ, that was our situation. That's where we were at. We were in bondage to Satan, bondage to sin, and it was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin that conquered death, that conquered that slavery, that bondage to Satan, and that brought us freedom that we could go from slavery to Satan to child of God. It's only possible because of what Jesus has done on the cross for our sin. And so when you accepted Jesus, guess what? The devil lost that power that he once had over your life. So the first wonderful thing that Jesus' death accomplished for us is it destroyed the devil who had power over death. And the second wonderful thing that Jesus' death accomplished is Jesus' death released us from the fear of death that held us in bondage. You know, if you look at statistics and people sharing things that they're afraid of, always at the top of the list, whether it's number one, number two, but it's up there all the time, one of the greatest fears that people have is the fear of death. And death has some pretty impressive statistics. Ten out of ten people born, they're going to die. And so there's, you know, a recognition that this is coming, All of us are going to face this, and there's this fear that's associated with it. And unless you have accepted Jesus and also know what's coming after you die, there's some really good reason to fear death. 
The Bible is very clear. For those who have not accepted Jesus, there's great reason to fear death. I mean, some people are fearful of the pain. Some people are fearful of you know, having to leave their loved ones behind. And I get those, you know, those feelings. But if they don't know Jesus, there's a much greater fear that they should have. And that is the fear of God's judgment upon them for all eternity in hell, which is what the Bible says they are going to face if they do not accept Christ in this life. And so for people who don't know Jesus, they should be afraid of death. I mean, death should be the greatest fear that they have, and not for a lot of the reasons that they think, but for the ultimate reason that the Bible tells us of the judgment of God that awaits them when they die. But what the author's trying to do is not, you know, rain on our parade. He's trying to encourage. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we should not fear death. Hey, if you know Jesus, then you know where you're going. You know that when you die, hey, you're going to go be in heaven. You're going to be in a place where there's no more sickness, there's no more sadness, there's no more tears, there's no more pain. You get to spend eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ. I mean, death is a blessing to us. Yeah, it might be painful as we die, but man, we're leaving this world that's full of sin, that's full of problems, that's full of difficulty, that's full of hardship, and we're going to be in the greatest place with the greatest person ever. And so as believers, there should not be a fear of death like there is with unbelievers. You know, Jesus gave us a promise that we really need to, to hold on to. In John eleven twenty five 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And this is that question, you know, I can declare it, but it doesn't do anything for you if you don't believe it. You're going to still be fearful if you don't believe in the reality of what Jesus accomplished for us. That when we die, we truly do have the hope, the certainty of heaven. That's where we know we're going. And if that is something that you're confident in, it should remove the fear of death. You know, there's a little boy with his father and they were driving down a country road with the window down and enjoying the beautiful weather. And all of a sudden a bee flies into this car, and the boy is deathly allergic to bees, and he starts freaking out and screaming, and his father is worried as well, and his father reaches out, and he grabs the bee in his hand. And a few moments later, his father opens the hand, and and the bee starts uh, buzzing around again, and the kid's freaking out again, and the father just tells his son to, to look at his hand, and there in his hand is the stinger from the bee, and he tells his son at that moment, do you see this? You don't need to be afraid anymore because I have taken the sting for you and the bee can no longer hurt you. You know, as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of death anymore. And the reason why is because Jesus took the sting of death away. Death can no longer hurt us like it can to those who don't trust in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 shares wonderful truths about what Jesus did over death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has lost the sting over you and over me who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ because he gives us victory over death because he conquered death. He was victorious over death and now we can be as well. So the third reason why Jesus and his humanity is greater than angels is because Jesus' death destroyed the devil and the power of death and released mankind from the fear of death and no angel could do that. 
No angel can save you from the devil, the power of death. You know, if our hope was in angels, we surely have a lot of reason to fear. Because guess what? If our hope was just in angels, then yeah, when we die, we're going to be judged. When we die, we're facing hell. If angels were the only hope we had, then we should be full of fear because they can't help us. They cannot conquer death for us. They cannot pay for our sin. And so we would be in quite a bad place if we were looking to angels instead of looking to Jesus. Now, it's important to remember the recipients of this letter, the reason that they were even considering leaving Jesus and going back to Judaism was because of persecution. They were being killed for following Jesus. And so, you know, death was a real reality that could be very imminently coming for themselves. They recognize, I have this loved one who's been killed, and I have this friend who's been killed, and I know that there is this threat upon my life because I follow Jesus. And so, you know, there was this reality that I'm sure many of them had a fear of death because it was coming, and it was probably coming soon for many of them. And they needed to remember that in all of this, they don't need to fear death because Jesus has conquered it. And the worst thing that can happen to them in this life is that their life is taken, but to know where they're headed, to know how much greater it's going to be in heaven. And it's only Jesus that can do this for us. Only He is the one who could conquer death, but also remove the fear of death that you and I once had. So these believers in us who are facing death, we need to look to Jesus not try to get away from him. They need to realize the best place they can be is connected to Jesus and all that he has done to conquer death, not go back to Judaism and the law, which doesn't do anything for their death. The fourth reason why Jesus in his humanity is greater than angels is seen in the final verses of chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Here we're told that Jesus doesn't give aid to angels, but he does give aid to another group. He gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, this term seed of Abraham is not just referring to the physical descendants of Abraham. It's used more in the New Testament concept that we see in verses like Galatians 3.7, which says, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Romans, Galatians, they build this whole case that you know, if you truly want to be a, connected to Abraham, be like Abraham, who was this man who had faith in God. And so it's through faith that we're connected, not just a, a natural, physical descendant of being Jewish, that, no, the real connection is those who put faith in Jesus. And so the author ultimately is saying, hey, God doesn't give aid to angels, but he does give aid to those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And, and notice the, the reason we're given for why Jesus is able to give us the aid that we need in all areas of life. 
And I hope this comforts you because I think there's some times where we feel like, well, Jesus doesn't understand. Jesus couldn't give me aid here. Jesus couldn't help me in this situation. He doesn't know how I'm feeling. He doesn't know what I'm experiencing. He doesn't know about this temptation. And we get those kind of thoughts in our mind. And what Hebrews reveals is actually, that's not true. Notice what we're told. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in all that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Notice what we're told here. In all things, Jesus was made like us. When Jesus became a man, he took on all things that we experience, all things that we're tempted by, the things that we suffer through. Jesus took it all on. He didn't just take on flesh and blood and kind of like, well, you know, here I am, God in flesh, and and I kind of remove myself from from the majority of what you guys have to deal with and suffer through and be tempted by. No, I'm taking it all. I'll go through it all. I'll experience it all just like you and I have to experience it all as well. In every way, he was made like you and I. And notice there's two reasons why this is important. The first reason is so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What's one of the jobs of the high priest? To to make propitiation, to make atonement for the sin of the nation of Israel. But in order for the high priest to um, present these things for the people to make atonement for their sin, he had to be one of them. And this is something that for Jesus to be our high priest, he had to become a man. He had to become one of us in order to represent us. He couldn't represent us from the throne in heaven. He had to represent us because he became one of us. Now, the concept of Jesus being our high priest is something that the author of Hebrews is going to spend a lot of time unpacking. And so we're just going to leave this one here for now because we're going to spend a lot of time looking in this in the chapters to come. But this is one of the reasons why Jesus, in taking on everything, becoming just like us, it was so that he could be that merciful and faithful high priest representing us, knowing exactly what it's like to be one of us because he was one of us. But what I want to highlight this morning, since we'll be looking at that more in the the weeks to come, is this. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. The second reason Jesus was made like us in all things is so that he is able to aid us who are being tempted, who are suffering, to give us that effective aid to help us in the way that we need it. You know, something very important to understand that we sometimes miss is that when Jesus was here, he suffered greatly. He was tempted in all ways that you and I are tempted. Jesus knew the temptation of power, the temptation of pain, the temptation of riches, the temptation of poverty, the temptation of popularity and rejection, the temptation of what brought from his friends and from his enemies... He knew a lot of suffering, being hated and despised, being rejected, being abandoned. He knew the suffering of weariness and disappointment and sorrow and loneliness as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? He knew the suffering of being beaten and being killed. Sometimes we just think, oh, Jesus, you couldn't relate. You don't know what it's like. 
But he does. He suffered worse than you and I. He was tempted in all ways that you and I are tempted. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Many persons are tempted but do not suffer in being tempted. When ungodly men are tempted, the bait is to their taste and they swallow it greedily. Temptation is a pleasure to them. Indeed, they sometimes tempt the devil to tempt them. But good men suffer when they are tempted and the better they are, the more they suffer. And I bet you you've experienced this. It becomes kind of this weight that's difficult as you continue to resist, resist. There's sometimes, you know, when you give in to temptation, there's kind of this release of like, okay, well, well now all that weight that's been on me of, of trying to resist is no longer there. But recognize, Jesus never in his whole life gave in to temptation. And it just constantly built. And, and something that he experienced worse than any of us. Now the main point the author wants us to understand is that because Jesus suffered like we do, because he was tempted like we are, he is able to aid us when we are suffering and when we are tempted. But here's the most important thing. He knows how to get you through it without sinning, because he did. You know, our struggle is, well, yeah, I suffer, and I just want the suffering gone. And God says, no, I want you to get through it without sinning. Oh, I'm tempted, and I just want the temptation to go away. No, I want you to resist the temptation without sinning. Well, who can do that? Jesus did. He suffered immensely and never sinned. He was tempted in all ways that we are and never sinned. So he's the one we should be looking to to aid us because he can get us through suffering and through temptation without sinning because he is the example of the one who did it. He knows what it's like. He sympathizes with us. He knows how hard it is. He knows how difficult those temptations are. He knows how difficult it is to be betrayed. He knows how hard it is to have people that you love abandon you. He knows the, the suffering of people, you know, destroying and literally taking his life. I mean, he's experienced those things. And so when we go through these things and we think, God, you don't understand, that's not true. He does. And not only does he understand, and not only has he experienced it, but he is the one best suited to help us get through it in a way that doesn't sin. And notice that Jesus didn't have those things removed from his life, which is basically what we always pray for. God, take it from me. When he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. I'm willing to go through it. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to have whatever comes my way and not sin. But too often our prayers, Lord, just take the temptation, take the suffering, get rid of it from my life. That would make things so much easier. Yeah, it would make things so much easier. But often God's plan is, no, I want you to follow the example that I set when I was here on this earth, and I want to get you through it. I want to walk you through the suffering without sinning and get to the other side. I want to walk you through the temptation without sinning so that you overcome it. And I'm not just going to remove it from you every time you ask for that, because that's often not the way that God answers and works because he wants to use those things to help us become more like him who went through all that for us. So the fourth reason why Jesus and his humanity is greater than angels is because Jesus aids us in our suffering and temptation because he went through those things as well and no angel could do that. Angels don't know what it's like to be human. They don't know what it's like to experience the temptation that we do, to suffer the way that we do. And so they cannot aid us in our suffering and temptation like Jesus can. You know, God might send them 
to protect us, and they might send them to do different things, but they do not have the same kind of experiential understanding of what it's like. And there's a huge difference. You know, I mean, early on in my you know, church ministry, there were people in the church before I got married who had miscarriages, and you know, I tried my best to try to comfort and console, but there was a huge difference when Jenny and I had two miscarriages. All of a sudden, there was an experiential knowledge that was very different. I knew that was bad. I knew that was you know, sad, and I tried my best beforehand to try to really help, but I was so much more helpful, and people could relate, and I could understand so much more because I experienced it, and all of a sudden, man, when someone experienced that now, the, the, the ability to relate, the ability to comfort, the ability to help was so much different because I'd been through it. And we've all experienced that. You, know, you, you want to, in those moments, you, know, you want people who have gone through it to be around you because, you know, hey, I want someone who's gone through it, who's got to the other side, who's made it. Those are the people that are going to be encouraging, not someone who has no idea of what I'm going through right now. And we need to understand, even if you don't have those people around you, there's one that always knows what you're going through, and that is Jesus. Jesus came to this earth as a man. He conquered sin and death. He took dominion over the earth. And he made it possible for us to have dominion as well. He saved us. He sanctified us. He made us children of God. His death destroyed the devil, the power of death. He released us from the fear of death. And he aids us in our suffering and temptation because he went through those things as well. And so he is clearly the greatest. Greater than angels, greater than anyone because no one else could do that for us. And so as we look at who Jesus is, and even as we're looking here, specifically what he did as a man for us, each one of us should be convinced that nothing and no one is greater than Jesus. John Piper wrote this, Consider Jesus. Know Jesus. Learn what kind of person it is you say you trust and love and worship. Soak in the shadow of Jesus. Saturate your soul with the ways of Jesus. Watch Him. Listen to Him. Stand in awe of Him. Let Him overwhelm you with the way He is. I think this is such a great challenge for us, especially in the midst of suffering and temptation. If we will just put our eyes on Jesus and really just grow in our understanding and just be saturated with Him, understand who He is more and more, deeper and deeper. We'll become more like Him, but we'll see the greatness that He has and the greatness that He is and what He's able to do, what He has done, what He continues to do, what He promises to do. And it's such a blessing and encouragement and help. And it's when we lose sight of Him, which is what the, the readers, the initial readers of Hebrews had done. They lost sight of Jesus. And therefore, they started losing sight of his greatness and losing sight of the greatness of all he accomplished for them. And they started looking to something else because they lost sight of what they should have been looking to. And the author of Hebrews is kept, keeps bringing them back. Look, Jesus is so great. You've lost it. Start looking to him and see his greatness because your eyes are on something else. And it's taking you away from what you need the most right now in the midst of persecution and suffering and temptation. He is the only one who can get you through it. And so look to him. And that's my encouragement to myself, my encouragement to you. Consider Jesus, know Jesus. Learn what kind of person it is that you trust in and worship. See the greatness that he has. And watch how he is there for you and helps you to grow to become more like him. Let's pray.